Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Mark Kenny here. In Australia, we've recently marked Reconciliation Week, which this year had the theme of All in This Together. But as events around the world have dramatically illustrated over the last couple of weeks, we are still a long way from achieving true reconciliation. We at Democracy Sausage acknowledge that the journey towards reconciliation is the responsibility of all of us every day. With that in mind, we acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we're recording today and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. I asked the Prime Minister, How good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Welcome to Democracy Sausage Extra. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute. I want to talk to you this week about why policymakers in Canberra have concluded that the early childhood education sector is somehow less central to economic growth, to the maintenance of jobs and the survival of COVID-ravaged businesses than other parts of the economy. Earlier this week, the Morrison Coalition government took what was, when you think about it, the first intentionally negative decision since this pandemic crisis began. Travel and sporting bans notwithstanding, almost everything else the government has been doing in Canberra has been about spending big to ensure free childcare, subsidised wages, to encourage new asset purchases by business and even pay twice the usual rate of new start. None of this tends to make governments unpopular, of course, even if the budget impacts are significant. But as Labor found out in 2008-09, galloping stimulus is one thing, dismounting is quite another. But the decision to end free childcare seems particularly harsh against women in the workforce and against women in business. And it comes with a clear breach of promise too, in that along with the withdrawal of the subsidies also comes the withdrawal of JobKeeper, which was promised until the end of September, you'll remember. So let's discuss all of this, and to do that, I'm delighted to welcome a couple of eminent economists. Barbara Pocock is a professor emeritus at the University of South Australia, and she's also an author and well-known expert on the labour market. Welcome, Barbara. Hi, Mark. And Trish Bergen, currently the co-director governance of the 5050 by 2030 Foundation based at the University of Canberra. She's a former head of the Office for Women in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Great to have you here with us, Trish. Perhaps I'll start with you. Okay, thanks. Great to be here. Thanks, Mark. Now, I wonder if you wouldn't mind, Trish, just giving us a, a kind of a a kind of a sketch, I suppose, of the way childcare subsidies have been working and what this, you know, what the decision means that the government has taken. Because um, 
I, I'm probably not alone here in saying that childcare funding is a, is a little befuddling to uh, to those who don't have to deal with it on a on an ongoing basis. Absolutely. Um, so so pre COVID, Mark, the 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 system had uh, I think it had just been a year and a half since a, a major reform, a new system introduced to make um, the the payments uh, easier. So the system itself is quite flexible. It's the policy settings that actually. Um, make it so complicated. And it's complicated for a couple of reasons. Um, it's complicated because the, the government sets a benchmark uh, which allows it to um, uh, determine uh, at what point does the uh, government subsidy kick in in terms of uh, parental income. Uh, it's, uh, so at, that, at, that sta- at this stage it's about 85% um, uh, of the cost of care is is uh, subsidised for the lowest paid, so the people at the the bottom end of the income scale, um, uh, and tapers uh, tapers out at uh, um, at, a, at I'm not sure exactly what the um, the dollar value is, but it's it, it tapers right out at the upper income level. So so there's that that contribution. So um, individuals are required to estimate their income for a for a financial year. Uh, and their subsidies um, is based on that. And that causes a lot of uh, consternation for many people whose income is not stable and particularly those workers uh, who are casualised or uh, part-time or, or have you know, a number of casual roles. It's very difficult to determine what your, what your annual income is going to be. The result can be in some cases um, where uh, individuals end up with very large you know, thousands of dollars of, of debt that they have to repay um, uh, before the end of the financial year once the, uh, once the, uh, the amount has been determined by government. So um, the, the other complex thing is that the government uh, has previously had um, very strong activity tests which um, are around uh, individuals applying for it and getting the government subsidy uh, have to have to have um, proof that they've been either in employment, looking for employment, uh, volunteering, studying, or um, uh, uh, yes, yeah, so any one of those those things. But again, it's an activity test that has to be um, uh, you know a hurdle, which which for a lot of people again it has been quite a disincentive to accessing accessing childcare. Um, the cost of childcare itself has just gone up. Um, astronomically over the last um, well, several decades, and that's uh, not reflected in in payments to to childcare workers. Um, they are one of the lowest award uh, payments. Um, I think the the um, the, low, the, um, the award is around twenty one dollars an hour. I think, which is just above the the sort of um, minimum wage, which is um, seventeen dollars an hour. And so it's it's um, but but the cost of childcare has gone up as expectations of childcare as an early learning um, activity have, um, has has gone through the roof. So so in terms of in terms of it being um, a system which um, is a difficult one, uh, and and one of the major problems is is too that the um, sorry the um, uh, you can't choose to to go to a you know in in education. I mean, the cost of the cost of childcare for the average household is around has been estimated at around twenty seven percent of family income, uh, which is often you know more than a mortgage, certainly more than sending children to private school. But 
in the case of childcare, you can't actually choose to go to a, you know, just a, a, a government-funded um, centre. You can go to ones that, that uh, are not the big corporates, but they're still, they're still all um, sort of in the same, the same sort of cost, well, within a range, but, but you can't choose to go to a free childcare centre, for instance. Um, so, you know, so all of those sort of things make it an incredibly hard decision. It's, it's difficult for, for people to estimate how much their income is, how much they're going to have to pay in a subsidy or how much they will receive in a subsidy, so how much it's going to cost them overall. Um, which and and you know the other problem, and I'm sure Barbara will talk about this, is the the interaction with the the tax system. So as soon as as soon as you work more than uh, the secondary income earner, which is um, in the majority of cases women, um, they, it, uh, uh, the individual's um, income then after three days uh, tips them over into the next ta- tax bracket, and uh, they lose. Quite a significant amount of the um, uh, the subsidy on the fourth day of childcare, as in you know if you've got three days, it, it is the sweet spot. Fourth day, you you are working for about you know sort of ten percent of what what you earn, and on the fifth day, you actually go backwards. So all of these things make it incredibly uh, complex, uh, difficult to navigate um, system. So that was that was what happened. So like you say, I mean the, the moment that the government announced uh, free childcare, I think everybody just about fell over. Well, certainly any working parent. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, it, it seemed uh, literally too good to be true. Um, and yet... It, well, it turned out it was too it good was. to be true, yeah, yeah because it hasn't lasted. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And so so we, we started to hear noises uh, back in, in mid-May that uh, the government was thinking of um, turning it off. I think the original legislation had it finishing on the 28th of July, or no, June, sorry. Um, that didn't. That date came and went, as in the that they had to give four weeks' notice to the sector that they would be um, uh, ceasing the, the free the free childcare. Uh, but we did see it over the long weekend that uh, you know it was announced um, on the long weekend um, that 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 would cease and we would revert back to the old system. And, and that old system is just so, sorry to just uh, to interrupt you there, but the the old system, as you were just I think demonstrating very well, is is you know very complex and places uh, enormous kind of burdens on people in terms of record keeping and estimating their income and the amount of work they do, mm. and presumably just has a whole lot of perverse disincentives built into it for people to. Um, uh, you know, to work more. Uh, you know, we, we hear a lot about labour productivity and about getting, uh, you know, greater women's participation in the workforce, uh, but it looks like the system is designed to frustrate both of those ends. Exactly. Um, it's one of those uh, in, incredibly perverse uh, things. I think the government thinks of childcare still as something that is a, a choice and certainly a lot of their language around childcare has been, you know, it allows um, women the choice of or and people the choice of whether they work or not it's it's not a fundamental right and I think the the fact that it, they did move so swiftly to make it free as they were watching you know wholesale um, layoffs and and so on happening in the um, you know many industries both the frontline health workers um, the hospitality workers all of those sort of people and and the the childcare centers themselves looking like um, they could easily collapse as well um, it was it was it is such a fundamental enabler 
of um, women's workforce participation in particular, but but parents generally. Um, the government itself has a strategy of increasing women's workforce participation. We're a signatory to the G20 um, uh, agreement to, that was made in Brisbane in 2014. Uh, to reduce the gap in women's workforce and women's and men's workforce uh, participation um, uh, by by fifty percent by um, twenty twenty two, so it's it's one of those things that it's it's odd to see and and uh, in the in that sorry in that strategy it talks about the research that supports um, the strategy that says the um, the two out of the top three reasons uh, barriers for women's workforce participation is one access to quality childcare and two financial assistance for childcare to support them to be able to do that, um, and yet uh, it's not recognised as such a, a crucial part of the you know the, the productivity agenda. Barbara, what uh, Trish says there is is demonstrably true, isn't it? Uh, that we, you know, you you judge a government really by by what it does, where it spends its money, mm. Uh, mm. and it seems like they've made a decision here uh, in in respect of the childcare sector. They've singled it out, really. It was only a couple of weeks ago, even less than that, that they were singling out the construction sector for extra mm. money for you know, so we could have people building. Homes and particularly uh, those with renovations ready to go could, uh, you know, get them going with $25,000 grants and so forth. And yet there's this other direction that they're pushing in childcare now with the early withdrawal of this, the early um, withdrawal of JobKeeper. Mm. Were you surprised when you saw this assistance suddenly rolled back? Well, I think, yeah, it was shocking. And I think the sector has been really uh, surprised by it. I totally agree with Trish when it was announced as as free, it was a big surprise also. But I think that showed how the government understood suddenly how this was essential infrastructure in a time of crisis and absolutely vital that it be made free to make it as easy as possible for people to where they had to go to work, especially essential workers. This is absolutely vital. So we, we've really seen something exposed in this pandemic of, um, you know, how important this service is. Um, but it, it's just so shocking that it's been singled out, as you said, to be um, to be immediately removed, you know, with a, within a few weeks. Um, but also for that group of workers to be singled out as the first to have JobKeeper removed. And I find it really shocking that it's on top of a series of um, policy decisions which are actually punitive against women. So this is part of, you know, several measures which really are hard to understand. If you're a government that wants to treat women in the workplace seriously just from a productivity angle, let alone from a fairness angle, then you would not be making JobKeeper unavailable to casual workers. That oh. is a step which is actually discriminatory against women because we are women are disproportionately represented amongst casuals and he wouldn't exclude education and the university sector and the arts sector from uh, access to JobKeeper and you certainly wouldn't choose construction as the place to put, um, you know, $855 million this week because research today released showed, for example, that, you know, this is worth less than 0.02% of a job for, for women for every million dollars spent 
than, than, you know, so many sectors where women have lost jobs where a much smaller investment will give you a much bigger bang for your buck in terms of job creation and not just for women but for men too. So, you know, I just think this is part of a series of decisions which are going to have a very negative impact on women and, and on families dependent on female earnings. Yeah. Now, some people listening to this might say, well, uh, you know, the childcare decision affects families. It doesn't specifically affect women. They might say that. But uh, why is that Why is that wrong? Well, as you said, um, it is, it is the, women are most uh, commonly the second earner um, in a household, especially when children come along. Uh, they take parental leave. Uh, very few men take extended periods out of the labour market when a child is born. Women do, and they take in Australia some time to return to the labour market. So it will be their income, which is part-time, frequently casual, and and it is a directly uh, discriminatory impact on on women because they are the carers of newborns and young children much more frequently than men. So, you know, you just can't walk away from We can use the language of parents, but the truth is it's mostly women who are doing this care and all forms of care. And, and if I can just jump in there too, I mean, um, that's, that's so right. It's also a baked in, um, or baked on, if you like, uh, sort of, um, male breadwinner, female carer, um, stereotype that exists in Australia in a way that doesn't exist in, in um, all other OECD countries, for instance. Australia has got one of the highest rates, I think it's the fourth highest rate of, um, women working part time. Um, out of any OECD country. And that's, as I say, in part due to the, um, the, the tax and transfer system that, that, um, it, it, uh, taxes you as an individual, but it also, um, uh, looks at transfers on a family basis. So what that ends up doing is it very much calls into, into relief the secondary income earner who, as Barbara said, is, is often the woman, woman. It's a sort of a self-perpetuating thing. Um, the uh, the secondary income earner then looks at the cost of childcare against their salary, so the marginal the marginal um, salary. They look at the cost of the childcare against that one rather than the whole family income, because that's what what she you know that's what she gets taxed on, and that's that's then um, uh, it, as I say, it's a self self fulfilling cycle that uh, keeps you in uh, women as generally the, um, the secondary income earner and choosing to work part-time. And then that has huge implications for, you know, um, aspiration to leadership positions, um, earning a higher income, uh, the gender pay gap generally, you know, so that if, you're, if you say to yourself, I'll just stick it, you know, kind of just below middle management because, you know, I really don't, I, I just want to work part-time. Uh, because that's what the the financial incentives um, encourage me to do, uh, you end up very much in the um, uh, you know in that that sort of un, under a ceiling, and so your lifetime income is going to be less, and your superannuation, oh yeah, <laughs> that's going to be less. Yeah, so and the figures really bear this out, don't they? I mean, I heard figures this morning. I think this is from the Australia Institute, as distinct from the Australian Studies Institute uh, where I work. But um, uh, they uh, uh, were saying that of the six hundred thousand people that have lost their jobs in in between March and April, fifty five percent of those, so well more than half, are, are women. And I think that underscores the precarious nature of their relationship with employment as a cohort compared 
two men. Yep. Yes, I, I totally agree. And they make that very interesting point that it's not just about the fact that women are concentrated in accommodation, retail areas, which have really been hard hit. It's also that they are so many of them casual and have been lost, um, you know, and especially the, the cut in hours, which the Reserve Bank now is encouraging us to use as the more sensible way of looking at what is the real job loss. Women's loss you know, is, is you know, half again of what it's been uh, for men in terms of hours of work. So a really big hit uh, for women in terms of, of the impact on their employment. And, you know, I'm, I've been around long enough for a few recessions, probably like you two, mm-hmm. and, um, <laughs> you know, I, I worked in the Hunter Valley in the 1980s in, the, um, in that recession, the one we had to have, and we did a lot of work under the Hawke-Keating government. There was a major employment creation program and it was targeted very deliberately um, for women uh, and for people with disabilities people and Aboriginal people. There were targets in every major project, including construction projects, because that government was assertively advised by women um, and, and in their advisory structures, that if they didn't do that, then they would end up with a pink recession, which is what we're looking at, I think. Mm-hmm. If you don't have labour market policy responses to a recession of the kind we're looking at, which particularly examine the experience of women, then you will unconsciously uh, really have major impacts that are negative for women. And they, they have a long-term uh, effect on women's earnings uh, many decades ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Let's pick this up in just a moment. Uh, We'll take a quick break here and be back in just a tick. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Okay, welcome back. Now, before the break we were talking about women's uh, uh, the security of of many jobs in in the workforce and the preponderance of uh, many of those uh, jobs that are not secure to be held by women for reasons of being part time and casual and and uh, short term contracts and the like in the university sector another sector that's not done well out of government assistance uh, through this period. Um, my colleague uh, Professor Sharon Bessel described uh, the situation for a whole lot of um, uh, you know research assistants and other people on short term contracts in universities. She called them the intellectual precariat, mm. which I thought was a, a, a very interesting term. Mm. Um, but it's it's certainly true that as a cohort, we're talking about a large number of people that through the peak of this crisis, and I'm talking about the general economy now, and particularly emergency services workers, frontline 
and healthcare workers and the like, vast numbers of these um, jobs are held by women. And we saw in this strange, uh, and I think at least initially in this very positive sense, we had reframed for us what actually constituted essential work, what we really valued. It wasn't showing up in their pay packets, but we suddenly realised that we need people to, we need drivers, we need nurses, we need, um, you know, uh, orderlies and cleaners and, uh, you know, retail workers, particularly in, 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 in food. Uh, production and and so forth. Many of these occupations very low paid and with low security. And now we find that as we come out of it, as it as it feels like the government's saying, well, thanks for all that, but we're going to uh, pull you off assistance first. And that's that seems to be the uh, the response mm. here. That the only interpretation I can bring to the way they've viewed childcare. I think a lot of women are certainly sorry, Trisha, certainly feel that. And especially the sector. I mean, the sector has been talking for decades about the pay rates uh, that they receive. They're an increasingly trained and skilled uh, workforce. We've imposed and, and appropriately um, training requirements. This is the most delicate part of the whole education system, the early years. We need to be investing really well there. And yet we slap it around. We underfund it. The OECD tell us that really we should be assisting parents on average income so that they're paying around 11% of income for childcare. We're up around 17 or 18% of costs. So we don't subsidise it enough from a public purse perspective and we still, as Trish said, underpay those workers who are so important, to, especially to low-income households where um, you know, poor quality early childhood education is a real problem long term, mm. just applying economic lens, let alone a justice lens. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, just just to to um, add to that, I guess uh, that um, I think there was some research done um, uh, that was supported by PwC just recently that was quoted by Early, Early Learning Australia. Um, they talk about uh, for the results of that research showed that for every dollar invested in the early learning um, uh, years, uh, sort of you know early up to um, uh, four, um, for every dollar invested there was a long term um, return to the economy of about two dollars. So you know a hundred percent return rate, which is pretty extraordinary. Um, it, it, it's um, it's one of the things that the government I don't think has ever really come to grips with in terms of um, early learning is is yes it is about uh, freeing up parents to be able to go to work but it also has a critical um, nation building or social infrastructure that uh, building that we we need uh, longer term and uh, it, it has- is that all we really saw is that sorry Trish is that all we really saw with you know we're, we're all saying how staggered we were at the free childcare decision in mm. hindsight given we're now seeing it being withdrawn and we're now seeing job keeper taken off the sector mm. in hindsight can we really just see that what that was about was ensuring at that stage they were worried about the mm. provision of frontline healthcare yep. workers and 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 other frontline services and childcare obviously uh, for people doing vital occupations they were trying to basically keep the economy going once again Standing on the plinth of uh, of a whole lot of low paid childcare workers. Mm, yep, absolutely. And now, now when they realise the situation isn't as bad as uh, as it looked like it was going to be, um, 
they're pulling that out early. Yeah. And and the sector is just um, you know reeling. It really is. It can't believe what what's happened. Um, and you know it just as you say, it feels like a kick in the guts. Um, uh, and in terms of we were an essential service, now we're not. But but in terms of um, you know from from a lot of the the sort of economists that I speak to um, that they they are, that it's hard to understand how you would stop. Um, fun, uh, fun, really uh, strongly subsidising childcare while the rest of the economy has JobKeeper because JobKeeper is there to, to help people while they're getting jobs or keep them attached, uh, sorry, to keep them attached to their jobs. Um, they will trickle back um, but, but, and that needs to go on for a, uh, for a certain length of time. But if the government's going to take an industry-by-industry industry approach, which it looks like it is now, um, it just, uh, you know, what does that do then for all the people who are not just on JobKeeper but who are actually unemployed, who lost their jobs? You know, they 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 are going to be, you know, lost their jobs. Yes, they've got a for the moment a higher uh, job seeker payment, uh, but but if they if they have to pay for childcare to to attend interviews. Mm. To, to start a new job, maybe to be taken on as casual to to try to, you know, see if they work out for a bit and see whether the business can support them. You know, all of that is incredibly precarious. It's, um, you know, to, so I think, you know, it's, it's policy is not interlocking the way it needs to. It's not thinking through what are we doing on the one hand with what our aspirations are on the, on, on the other. It's just kind of looking at each um, sector by by cutting it down sector by sector, it's just um, uh, you know really you know there's not an integrated approach across the economy. Well, I think absolutely agree with that point, but I think it also points to the long term failure to really deal with early childhood and childcare well in our country. You know, we have had a long term policy goal of increasing um, female participation rates and we you know everyone has agreed that that is a critical way of growing our gdp Mm. and yet all our parties it's a general problem in our community of a failure to really invest enough Mm. and that's probably going to return post pandemic and remain a really challenging uh, policy question which major parties need to really face up to and, and invest more we as a society need to invest more there's no other way if we want to do a good job of that. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Yes, I'm glad you made that point, actually, because I was going to ask you about, you know, your, your assessment as, as economists, I guess, about the, uh, the the implications for the economy of really just, to use your term, Trish, baking in this sort of permanent temporariness for so many people. I mean, the casualisation of work has been a trend that's been, you know, rippling through the economy for some time now. As we've been discussing, this disproportionately uh, affects women. The other policy settings that you need, therefore, in order to arrest that trend and to remove the, 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 the worst aspects of it, they're obviously in this space that we've been talking about now, and yet the, the government seems absolutely uh, either ignorant of it or willfully uh, has decided these aren't our people. I'm not sure what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I just cannot understand how come they can be telling people, go build an extension that you may or may not even need. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's, here's a wad of cash to do so. 
um, but this other sector, which seems, which which I would have thought in a kind of in the sense of integration right across the economy, you know, with 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 people right across our society needing to access childcare, um, this policy threatens women's participation in the workforce. That it, you know, and and at a time when hopefully you would be wanting to have as much confidence as you can in a rebuilding economy. Mm. I mean, I'll give an example. One of the examples that comes to my mind is that when you go to any shopping mall, you'll find a lot of shops with with a female business owner. She might have one or two or three employees. Um, but if she's got kids, then and her business is a very marginal proposition at the moment in these months coming out of this, and suddenly childcare is going to be back to uh, the old system, mm. is it really worth her sticking with it? Is it really worth her? I mean, can she employ anyone for a start? Mm. And and can she even stick with that business? I mean, mm. I thought the Liberal Party actually looked after these people. Mm. So, Trish, how do you think yep. the makeup of the parliament, uh, the makeup of the governing party, the makeup of the cabinet, what, what role does that play in these decisions being made it's not the first decision we've seen made by the government even through this crisis we saw that sort of slightly bizarre weird decision they exception they made of uh, of women's haircuts at one stage early on or, or or you know they said you could get a haircut that didn't last for more than 30 minutes um and it had people wondering what's uh you know who, who's who, who's doing the thinking here um, do you think the gender aspect, the, the, the gender makeup of the parliament and the government and its conception of what constitutes a, you know, a, a rigid ditch job and all of that, that all of that is feeding through to the, the, the assumptions underlying government policy? Oh, look, in, in um, short answer, absolutely yes. Um, I think what we've seen particularly over the last several years is um, the lack of women's voices in those key decision-making chambers, um, particularly uh, in the Cabinet um, and the the ability of women to be able to, um, to, to, to bring that perspective to bear, um, it just hasn't, it, it has not been heard. And, and what really disturbs me now, and, and I think you're, you're in, sorry, just to go back, your analogy um, with the, or your example of the, the haircuts is, I mean, that's, that's just the caricature of exactly how um, the lack of uh, understanding from a, a, a woman's point of view of the impact of policy, it's just not, it, 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 there is no, no, uh, uh, no sense of it at all, and it's just not feeding into policy until too late. Um, so and and I, I think that very firmly has to has to be the case with uh, with the childcare debate that's happening at the moment. Um, I mean, if you look at the the uh, the cabinet now, it's it's gone backwards in terms of its numbers. Um, we've got a minister for women who's incredibly capable, uh, but she's also the foreign minister, which is a huge portfolio. Um, so how she is able to? Um, she's also on national security um, cabinet. All of those things. So looking just at the workload, you, you just wonder how she, she manages to do anything there. Um, but, but generally speaking, it's not a voice that is, um, that is a sought or amplified um, in those, in those decision-making uh, bodies. And, and I think that's why we're seeing some of the policy that, that we've got. 
that and and I guess you know just as a, a bit of a throw away throw away thing I mean the adherence to such strong uh, neoliberal values um, which is all about you know kind of growth 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 and growth through uh, corporate um, um, you know sort of through you know business and, and all of that sort of thing it it doesn't it doesn't have a line in there for social infrastructure um, and you know under this government, there's been no tolerance of the term, you know, social inclusion um, as, a, as a term, obviously. But, you know, from, from that point of view, it means that, that all arguments have to be economic. And I guess that's what I find so odd is that even when you make the economic argument for, for um, things like childcare and the social infrastructure, it's still kind of viewed as a no. This is just you know money for babysitting for rich women's rich women to go out and play tennis or have lunch. Yeah, and what worries me is that it's not not just only economic. It's sort of short term economic. It's sort of status quo economic. It's not transformative economic. It's not visionary economic. They're not thinking. What does the economy need to do? What what policy settings do we need to have in place to drive the transformation that we even say, uh, you know, we want? Uh, they, instead, you, they do things like the, you look at the construction package, and it's mm. about keeping people in construction jobs. Now, that's a, a laudable aim in and in and of itself, but its macroeconomic effect is far smaller, I would have thought, than doing something about uh, about you know removing mm. these. Um, the, these strictures within the economy that are stopping female proper mm. rates of female participation in the labour market and uh, and driving productivity and driving that change. Um, one of the things they are doing, though, Barbara, is that they're having uh, they're having a little sort of uh, you know Bob Hawke light moment. I mean, a lot of uh, labour people will absolutely um, grumble at me even making that comparison, and I'm not literally doing so. I hasten to add, but. Scott Morrison has come out of this uh, this process. You know, the national cabinet's all about, you know, uh, cooperation and and uh, you know, not having useless, unproductive divisions. And we've seen the relationship between Sally McManus and Christian Porter, the industrial relations minister. You know, get a lot of press. Uh, there's a better atmosphere between the coalition and the labor unions than has been the case in the past. Um, how does uh, how does the, the the prospect of industrial relations reform, mm. of which casual work is one of the uh, you know one of the heads of uh, of discussion that they're looking to make changes to, including the possibility of people who are in casual employment being regarded as permanent employees? Um, how do yeah how does that all sort of um, uh, feed into this problem? Are you are you hopeful that it will actually have some benefit for what we've termed the precariat in of the labour market? Well, I think one of the major um, issues through this whole experience, this crisis, has been visible in the world of work. We have seen, um, you know, I've spent 30 years talking about flexibility at work and, and improving things for working carers in the workplace. In a single three-month period, we have seen a revolution in the way we work. And about flexibility, it's about where you work, it's about trust, uh, being trusted to work from home. Suddenly we've got workplaces that never thought they could work in these new revolutionary ways are doing it every day. So we have revealed before us a new way of working for many, many people, but we also have revealed to us the very partial citizenship 
that's available to a third of Australian workers. If you look at the way casual work has expanded, and not just casual work, but limited, repetitive limited term contract work, uh, bogus um, ABN work, you know, self-employed contractors and so on, our labour market is now built. Our economy is built. A third of the workforce is now in such conditions and they don't have access to a holiday. They don't have sick leave. They don't, aren't properly compensated for the loss of those things, despite what some conservative commentators say. So a really big challenge for us in our industrial relations conversation is how do we preserve the best of that flexibility revolution we've witnessed and how do we adapt to give full citizenship to the many workers who are precarious and don't have basic rights, which our forebears in the 1830s and 1860s and the latter half of the 1800s fought for security, access to, you know, have a rest when you're sick or have a holiday. New Zealand, many countries have... And get a loan. And get a loan, exactly. Raise their kids, have a job, have a career. The big challenge for the industrial relations conversation is not about just stopping smashing unions, which has been the industrial relations agenda of the Conservatives really for the last 20 years. It's moving to adapt to the fact that the workforce is now half women. It's half carers. It's people who need a different way of working and people who need security. So I I think the time for that conversation is there, is in front of us. We've got examples of doing it better all around us. Uh, can we rise to that challenge and, and do it better, including in our childcare system? Um, and I'm really hoping that we can. I'm not optimistic that we'll necessarily do all that we need to do. Yes, uh, I guess we're all hoping that we can, but uh, none of us will likely be all that optimistic about it either. These are are very big questions. But, look, it's been absolutely fantastic talking them through with you both, Barbara Pocock and Trish Bergen. Uh, You've been good sports through some technical difficulties, which, as uh, you were just saying, Barbara, is... We've had a lot of changes in the in the workforce in the way a lot of things are done through this crisis and remote podcasting is uh, one of those things and sometimes it brings its challenges thanks to a pretty patchy uh, old uh, national broad- broadband system as well, I might just say. But uh, we'll leave that for another time. As I say, thanks for uh, joining us on Democracy Sausage Extra and I'll be back uh, on Monday with uh, with the next episode. Until then, bye for now. 